Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. We're in our new podcast room. Mm -hmm. So exciting. Super sealed. It smells of um, sealant. Sealant. Uh, What's it called? Um, Decorator's cork. A man came around with a gun full of it just a few minutes ago and we were thinking we might not get in. But yeah, um, yeah, it's better than the old one because it's not a basement anymore. It is. Uh, Doesn't mean the quality of the podcast is going to improve. I think it does. Do you think? I think that's guaranteed. Have you noticed that by fifty so percent? I just purely by the sort of low level of fumes I'm getting from that uh, sealant. And we've also um, now got sixty thousand listeners instead of like two thousand. Not really. It's not true. It's not true. I, I can't claim that. It's not true. But it's very nice. Um, this week has mainly been characterised by not watching Love Island, mm-hmm. as was last week. Mm-hmm. Um, we're both, as is so often the case in this job, you find yourself editing a lot of copy about things that you have absolutely no first-hand It does give you of. enough awareness of them to have the odd line of conversation yes. with somebody, doesn't it? If you yes. are stuck at someone's party and you can just you can, rehash one of Rachel Cook's opinions. You can retell, sorry, Rachel, you can just retell one of her jokes. Actually, she's very funny on that. Scene this week. Um, what are your plans for the weekend, Kate? I'm going to see Jeff Beck tomorrow. Oh. So I have a, a recurring dad date, which is we go and see Jeff Beck together when he plays in London. He's now 72 or 73. And tomorrow's gig is very special because he's playing with the Chelsea Pensioners. Well, not with the Chelsea Pensioners. <laughs> that would be amazing. He's playing at Charity Chelsea. Single. <laughs> Chelsea Hospital with, and the Pensioners will be in the audience. Um, so it should be, it should be interesting. It's all outdoors. And we were thinking, are we going to have to be standing all night? If it's is it one of these kind of like you know standy outdoor things? And of course, we realised, of course, it's not because the pensioners are going to be there. It's not going to make them stand. So it should be. I'm thinking it's going to be um, maybe his more popular classics kind of uh, repertoire. So he does amazing versions of Beck's Bolero. And um, what's his early like? Really famous? Is it Hi Ho Silver Lining? That's his. Yeah, he that, wouldn't. He wouldn't do that. Does he ever play that? That's the one that. That's the song that he likened to having a pink toilet seat hung around your neck for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, and he actually plays with beautiful, um, leisurely versions of things like Day in the Life by the Beatles. And, and he's just totally absorbed in his own world, and he's very strange. So. I've actually seen him with my dad. Have you? Yeah. Where did you see him? At the Royal Festival Hall with Jack White. Of wow, the White Stripes. Really? Yeah. They also played the Chelsea Pensioners. Did they? The White Stripes, yeah. I have to say that was amazing because you could see that 
Jack White was getting to play. I mean, the White Stripes were big uh, at this stage. They weren't necessarily the kind of mega um, mega group that they are that they are now, or he wasn't the mega star that he, that he is now. But you could see he was getting to play with one of his absolute heroes. What was um, Beck like? Did you like him? Yeah, I liked him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't really remember him as a as a as a persona much. He's got um, very wiry, sinewy arms, yeah. and he kind of wears like boxing trousers and <laughs> boxing boots, and he's got this sort of feather feather haircut. He was famously the model for Nigel Tufnell and Spartan right, yeah, Tufnell, yeah, so. yeah. But he's still very active in that he he put his bottleneck down on the stage last time I saw him, and he just swooped down in one movement and got it up while while still playing. I was thinking, you know, you you were seventy one at that yeah. point. How did you do that? Do keep Should be good. Jeff Beck news over. Um, what else are we going to be talking about on this podcast? <laughs> We're going to be talking about the uh, new exhibition, um, Frida Kahlo exhibition at the V&A, Making Herself Up, which is a, a vast collection of personal effects and a little bit of artwork. And we're going to be talking about Atlanta, which is Donald Glover's TV series now in its third season. Uh, third season is next year, I think. Oh, it's so had, the it's had two seasons, yeah, aka um, Childish Gambino, mm-hmm. of course. And we will have the, uh, the millionth in our non-anniversary series. So, Kate, this week we've been to see the V&A's big new exhibition, Frida Kahlo, Making Herself Up, which is billed as, a, as an exhibition of artefacts showing how uh, Kahlo fashioned her identity. It wasn't until um, 1977 that her, one of her paintings was first sold in auction, which is amazing, for $19,000. And uh, so that's more than 20 years after, after she died. After her death. So it wasn't, you know, in her lifetime, she wasn't sort of appreciated as the artist that she was. And it was really, weirdly enough, it was the 1990s, especially with the interest from Madonna, who started collecting her, that she became the figure that she is today. But even now, her, her paintings don't go for a humongous amount. Like last year, one was sold for 8 million, which in the scheme of things is not, it's not that big. But I thought that was interesting in 1977 until one was actually sold at auction. So in her lifetime then, because this is one thing you didn't get a huge sense of from the exhibition, um, but in her lifetime, not really In her lifetime, it was her, her marriage to Diego Rivera, that he was the, you know, the, obviously the successful commercial mm. artist. And there is something that comes across of uh, a slight reversal in this, this exhibition, because the other thing that was known about him was that he was a serial shagger and was having loads of affairs. And as this exhibition makes clear, she was also having plenty of affairs. So the whole sort of, the, the power balance is sort of reversed, which is quite refreshing. There's a, there's a lovely sort of recurring joke in the, uh, in the captions where it's like, because there's quite a, there's, as well as the artifacts, there's quite a lot of photographs in this, um, in this show. And what you uh, come to realise is that, I'm getting my, ahead of myself a little bit, but they, the house that they uh, lived together in Mexico and became a kind of, hub, a sort of cultural meeting place, a hub. So lots of writers, artists, photographers came and took lots of pictures of, of the house, but also mainly of Frida Kahlo. And um, basically every caption, every caption is like, um, Edward Weston, with whom she had a brief affair, or um, Nicholas Murray, with whom she had a long affair. <laughs> and Diego's <laughs> sitting there in all the same pictures, yeah, grinning with his yeah, arm around yeah. her. She also had an affair with Trotsky. Yeah. Which was which was news to me. Yeah, I used to love Trotsky when I was at school. I thought Did he was you? quite cute, so I understand that really. There's a nice bit of footage of Trotsky, and he is he's got he has got something, hasn't he? He he's really got has a real charisma about him. He's a little goatee beard as well, mm. and the glasses, and the sort of the intellectual student look. It sort of it works. You can see why she did it. Um, so this the exhibition does sort of start at, at the beginning of uh, Frida Kahlo's um, 
life. And one of the interesting things you pick up quite early on is her how important her dad was, really. Um, he was German and emigrated to Mexico. Um, and his real name was Carl Wilhelm Carlo. And he, um, when he sort of discovered his Mexicanness, he changed it to Guillermo, um, which is really interesting because he caught, um, she did the opposite in that her real name was Magdalena Carmen Frida Carlo, very Mexican. But she actually took the German bit, Frida, as her as her first name. And at the height of the Roaring Twenties, that's when she decided to go into full and Mexican then she costume went full Mexican. forever. So, <laughs> so the two of them are kind of like interchanging these, you know, fluid identities yeah. but no they, they are they're thinking about you know who they want to he's also the, the the guy who did the self-portraits first right so he did yeah. lots of uh, photographs of himself in um i think it's the funny description of it he did he did nude self-portraits comic <laughs> self-portraits <Yeah>. and pensive <laughs> self-portraits <laughs> there weren't any examples of all those three things combined in one portrait which i would like to have seen but it's from you can see how from him she gets her sort of direct, defiant gaze. Mm. Like you, there's there's something in the eyes about, you know, even those are photographs and and, and her self-portraits or paintings. It's uh, you can see you can see the father's daughter in there. Yeah, he was a he was a professional photographer, so this wasn't just a hobby, but um and, and clearly quite a successful one. Um but there there are a couple of sort of key life events. Um she has polio, she contracts polio age six, which leaves one leg shorter than the other and delays her entrance to school so she spends lots of time with her dad helping with photos he takes pictures of her and she starts thinking about that process and then aged 18 i think she has this horrific accident which she doesn't really seem to discuss or depict in directly in any in any great way apart from there's one little um drawing which is reproduced um, in a kind of offhand way in the exhibition, actually, where she she kind of lays out what happened in the crash. So that she was in a wooden school bus coming back from school, which collided with a streetcar. Several people died and she had an iron bar, basically, that went through her whole body, it sounds like. Um, There's a description of the, the crash that she made later in life, which was very eerie. Um, she said something along the lines of, it was very quiet and very slow and and almost very calm. It's not like that like you imagine an mm. impact to be and sort of that sort of the surreality of that moment and probably realising as well that you've been injured but not feeling it yet because yeah. those kind of injuries you can't feel straight away because yeah. of the shock. So, And there was a mention very early on of the of the fact that after the polio, she she created at the age of six uh, an alternative version yes. of herself. and An imaginary friend. An imaginary friend, yeah. a second a Frida. Yeah. yeah, so that was there even before the, the bus crash and before adult life and painting began and everything. So that that seed of, of looking at yourself from the outside was obviously there from, from the very start, which I thought was interesting. And then that accident is kind of a really formative experience, as it would be, and feeds into so much of this show from the fact that, yes, she's... She starts painting around that time. She's kind of, she fixes up sort of mirrors to her bedpost so that she can do self-portraits while she's lying in bed. In fact, much later, because this obviously created physical problems that went throughout her whole life, there's a photograph of her in traction um, with kind of contraption set up so that she can paint lying she's down. She's painting there. on a canvas directly above, above her, her head, head, holding yeah. her arm up straight, yeah. which is, uh, I had no idea that, that she had to 
to go through that sort of... I mean, she painted often in a wheelchair as well, so she was sitting when she was painting. I thought the title of the the exhibition was was strange because, in a sense, making herself up, and obviously it's punning on the fact that there's an awful lot of personal effects and paraphernalia mm. and um, her relationship with her physical image as opposed to just with her, her painting. But I also thought that there was something slightly diminishing about the title because, in a way... If you're kind of born a force of nature, who which she obviously was, and the way, the way that she was able to deal with this this accident and to kind of take it on and make it into a creative thing, it sort of felt really making yourself up sort of implies maybe a little bit of a lack of agency, sort of like what what am I going to do? Okay, well I'll I'll create this uh, this this character that works. I'll create this this figure in the paintings, which mm. you also get with the sense of the um, yeah her her sort of uh, attention to her physical appearance and things like that. So I was kind of surprised by by the title a little bit. Yeah, especially when you see very early on, she's got such a, uh, there's such a strong personality that comes through in those photographs. There's a great family portrait um, quite early on and she's wearing a suit yeah. um, as a young girl. They think it might have been her dad's suit. but um, She's 14 and yeah. she's dressed as a man. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but I know what you mean. And there's a slight kind of knee-jerk resistance to the idea of it as well in that you think, well, this is... You know, is there something a bit a bit dodgy about um, couching a female artist in this in this terms? You know, why why aren't we just why aren't we just looking at the art and why aren't we paying paying more for the art? <laughs> and, well, there's not much art, is less, there? <laughs> but there's not much art. And and I think what what justifies it really is that she did think a lot about um, images of herself, and you know, there's one little. Um, painting um sketchy painting which i thought was really really interesting in terms of the uh, the thinking behind the show um she just titled it appearances can be deceiving and she's wearing this there's lots in the show about mexican traditional dress that she adopted there's this style called tejuana which is south mexican it's a very kind of matriarchal society she really identified with it she liked to wear their clothes so it's a picture of her wearing this big tejuana dress um, but it's sort of it's got this trans, translucent, transparent quality. So you see the dress, but then underneath it, you see everything that's um, damaged about her body. So you see this kind of crumbling spinal column. You see the medical corset. Um, you see the limbs, um, and she's you know she's thinking about how everything that she puts on disguises all the stuff that's going on inside. It has been criticised as a kind of shrine to pain the the exhibition. Right. So when you it has a, it's a strange process going through because it's partly the layout of those of those rooms at the VNA. You've got a very narrow corridor. You've got lots of um, uh, ancient family photos and sort of historical context. And then towards the end, you come across a vast room which is called sickness. And this is really the kind of the place. This is what people have come to see if they yeah. know anything about this show. You've got. You've got her orthopedic legs. You've got her plaster cast that she had around her torso. You've got the contents of her medicine cabinet. Um, you've got letters from her doctors. You've got the the lipstick she wore and the prescriptions that she got her dentist to write out for extra pain relief to help her sleep at night and stuff. And her and eyebrow pencil, very important. Her eyebrow yeah. pencil, because this, yeah, <laughs> because in of terms her of monobrow or uni, unibrow, unibrow, sure. monobrow or unibrow, and the, which she of course accentuated, yeah. so it wasn't as extreme as yeah. uh, you know. But it's um, it's a funny, a funny feeling you get from it because in the one sense, it's 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 sort of over it's putting too much emphasis on the physical um traumas that she went through 
at the same time, you almost sort of need that at the start of the exhibition mm. in order to understand what the exhibition is trying to say. So you've got you've got a very sort of um, almost ghoulish sense of the relationships that she had with her um, medical staff. Like there's a doctor who sent her um, sheet music and songs and the dentist that she she asked for sort of extra prescriptions. <laughs> it's a rather dramatic explanation of how he, he didn't want to prescribe her any more painkillers. So he tore up his prescription book so that he couldn't prescribe her with any more and stuff. And you think she must have had such a, um, a close network of people sort of living this painful life with her yeah. all the way through. But you wonder as well whether it is actually, whether that's what the exhibition is about rather than the artwork because there's so little of the of the painting there. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that, um, you know, she did take this stuff and turn it into art. So very literally in the case of these, you see these medical courses, but then she also had these plaster cast courses that would just sit on her body. I mean, I can't really imagine what that must must have been like to be encased in plaster for, for huge periods of time. But she turned those into pieces of art. and uh, While she was wearing them. While she them. was wearing them. So you see her painting on her... You know, it's a kind of, it's, you know, when you break your arm in uh, in secondary school and someone draws a cock and balls on it. You know, <laughs> exactly, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and apparently she had to be hung upside down in those casts. Oh my God. And for hours in order for them to, to set. I mean, it does tie in very much with the, it explains the self-portraiture because, you know, that she is in most of her paintings mm. and you've got herself as the artwork in creation, the defiance, the almost kind of split personality that she, that she had to develop as the sick person versus the vibrant, mm. beautiful one that everyone wanted to kind of be near in society. And so I think it, in a way it did actually allow me to understand a lot more about her appeal as, a, as an artist because, but at the same time, it was like, I don't know, it was weird because you wonder what she'd think of it. You know, she could go yeah. around there and see her her orthopedic leg with its fashionable boot attached to the bottom. Yeah. Does she really want that to be on display? Which she never really got to wear because that was, you know, to add, you know, to add to everything else, she had her leg am amputated because she had gangrene. Um, which led then, to her death. With, then she died a few months after. So I think that that prosthetic leg, which is really a striking object, but I, d I doubt she would have she would have had much use out of it. Well, we should say as well, this stuff was locked yes, up. This in is a, a key fact. A key fact. <laughs> in the start of this exhibition, we're leaving. <laughs> We're leaving key key facts right to the end. Sorry, yeah, go on. So this stuff was locked up in a bathroom mm. in her house. Yeah, I can't believe this for fifty years. So this was this was uh, unlocked by by Rivera. Was he still around at that point? No. So she died in fifty four. Mm. She left, uh, and then Rivera died in fifty seven, I mm -hmm. think. Um, but he he said all this stuff is sealed up in this bathroom, and he said it's not to be touched for fifteen years, one five right. years. Yeah. But then nowhere can I find an explanation as to why they left it till. <laughs> 2004 to unseal it but I, just, I i genuinely don't know but i think the house is now some sort of museum um but they didn't open it till 2004 it's interesting because they also didn't hide it i mean they did no, hide they it but they didn't it destroy there. it no, so no. they must have been imagining at some point that this stuff would be of of yeah. interest or i think part of it was it was um there was some political content to some of those that maybe he thought could cause cause problems um, but really, actually, you know, there's a lot of clothes. Mm. Um, we haven't we haven't really talked about the clothes. Sort of, you know, in a way, after the medical stuff, it's a bit of um, it's a bit of a change of change of tone. The last room is a is a huge cabinet with um, 
I don't know, maybe 20 outfits kind of in, mm. in the center. Um, and they are, they are amazing. Um, uh, All traditional Mexican, yeah. uh, a couple of Chinese um, skirts as well. I saw beautifully vibrant, heavily bustled Mexican clothing that you see her in wearing in her own painting. So mm. exactly what the stuff that you'd associate with her. I wonder if she had any ordinary clothes as well in tracksuit bottoms. That they, they didn't it, doesn't, it doesn't seem so, does it? Um, I mean, she literally, uh, you know, I liked there were a couple of little mentions of when she was in the States and she went there quite a lot. She, she basically stopped traffic. You know, she had children's uh, children asking like where the circus was. You know, <laughs> people were just kind of amazed to to see someone to see someone dressed like this. Um, but you get the sense that she sort of leaned into that and embraced it. I felt that it was quite um, a, a very modern show in the sense it's a it was a bit of a a bit of the way we might look at a modern pop star. So we we appreciate their appeal as as sort of um, role models or personalities now through their struggles with depression and anxiety and their sort of private pain and things. And all that stuff is turned out for everybody to see. The cupboards are turned out. They Instagram it themselves, all this kind of thing. Um, and in a sense, that's that's sort of what they're doing with her. They're looking at the sort of the, the cult of, you know, the freedolatry. Um, yeah. And they're examining why why it was that she's such a, a strong, um, still such an inspirational figure. I mean, I think on a very personal level to see somebody accentuating their own facial hair and joining up their their brows in the 1930s, 40s and 50s is, is a remarkable thing now, you know. I mean, I think probably the she is she is an an icon now mainly because of that image, right? Because mm. it because of that gender fluidity, that um the way she embraced the kind of less feminine aspects of her her appearance rather necessarily than you know a great engagement with the with the art itself mm. maybe they just couldn't get any of it as well where is it all yeah yeah maybe it's in private collections because it was sold off really cheaply <laughs> over the years because no one valued it at the time but also i mean maybe it, madonna's got it all she she probably has got a lot of it hasn't she but but also it's kind of interchangeable isn't it because the art is all of her image anyway exactly. so it's kind of you know you could send your uh, self um round and round in circles on this the um you know, it, it kind of, I'm sure the exhibition would say it interrogates the idea of the freedolatry, but then when you get to the museum shop, you know, it's, it is, it is there in, in full force, isn't what it? What were your so, favourite things in the shop? Um, well, you've got, I mean, the curtains were pretty amazing, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Full on, full on Frida curtains. In a kind of jungle scene. Yeah. Like, where's Wally, but where's Frida, yeah. but stand, yeah. standing behind trees. I like the hot sauce. <laughs> and refried beans. And refried beans. And there was like a, a sort of Mexican cactus wall hanging as well for 50, 50 pounds. pounds. Made of felt. Yeah. And there were all sorts of people, you know, trying on sort of parrot earrings and, you know. Is this too much? Am I mad? <laughs> <laughs> people trying on. Super colourful clothing that they're never going to wear once yes, they get up. It is too DNA. much. No, you'll never wear. Yeah, you made the point that it's like um, shopping on holiday. So. <laughs> I'll wear this. No, yeah. I will. I'm not. It's like you get out onto exhibition row and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> Um, but it works, doesn't it? It, it? I think it, it does work, I think. And it, it's, um, no, it's, it's it's well worth a visit. If you know what you're getting in for, if you know you're getting in there to see prosthetic limbs, then <laughs> then go. Uh, Frida Kahlo making herself up is at the VNA until the 4th of November. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So quite a few British people, I'm presuming, unless I'm the only one who it's taken this long to catch up with it. I'm sort of finally having to get to grips with the concept of Childish Gambino <laughs> after um, last month, was it? The This Is America video, which you, you don't need me to tell you about. But I knew roughly that this thing, Childish Gambino, existed. Did you not get annoyed by the name? I used to get emails in 2011 about this guy and I was like, oh, that's such a silly name. I'm not even going <laughs> to open these emails. And I got him mixed up with um, Chili Gonzalez. <laughs> it didn't actively annoy me, but I certainly didn't wasn't inspired to like seek out his stuff. I mean, I think it is sort is his sort of joke name, isn't it? He, he, so, yeah, the character, isn't it? He got it. He he um he came up with it via a online name generator based on Wu Tang Clan uh, language. So <laughs> anyway, but um he is the creation of Donald Glover, who did this little Saturday Night Live skit where he described himself as a triple threat because he's uh, he's an actor, a musician, and what's the third one? Writer. Uh, stand-up comic. Stand-up comic. Writer, yeah, but he director. wanted to be a it's wedding everything. planner when he was a kid. Did he? Yeah. Apparently, according to The New Yorker, he profiled him a little while back. But um, I thought that was interesting. Probably one of these people who's just um, too creative, <laughs> going in too many different directions, doesn't know where to settle. Yeah, he's had this sort of interesting career in that he started off writing for 30 Rock and then he was in Community and had um, appeared in Girls as well and um, and then wrote his own show, uh, Atlanta, which has had two seasons, but is just now being screened on the BBC. It's a strange, been watching dreamlike, it. meandering comedy that he's, he sort of agreed was, yes, it's the Black Seinfeld, he said. <laughs> it's, I, I like the, um, I think it's quoted in, in that New Yorker piece as well, but um, I forget where the quote comes from. I think it's another show, but it's like, um, comedies don't have to be funny anymore. You just have to end after 30 minutes. Mm, That's exactly. it, bang, you're a comedy. <laughs> he doesn't necessarily want people to laugh no. as well, because it does have these extremely cutting shocking moments of exposing racial behavior basic racist behavior so it's sort of it, it d- jumps up and bites you and at the same yeah. time it's very dreamlike I mean I watched it um backwards by accident <laughs> so the first episode I saw is actually the most recent and I thought okay I get this it's like David Simon because they were in a club and it was all subtitled you couldn't hear what anyone was saying over the music and I thought okay I'm just gonna let this wash over me and then the next episode which was the, the part seven out of the new series was a, a completely um, fictional TV channel um, with a sort of fake talk show on it and fake made-up adverts. And I thought, okay, I don't know what's going on. But then I did start at the beginning and now I get it. This is the first season that we've been watching, we should say. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's interesting you say um, David Simon because he uh, he said he loves it and he said basically it's like a kind of compilation of all the bits that he really loved out of The Wire. So... The things that aren't he would the, say that, the, he? <laughs> the things that aren't the main story, but like the kind of weird stuff going on at the side. At the side, and um, I should probably just the, the, the base. I mean, there's not. There's one of the striking things about it is there's no plot really, but it's basically this. Um, Donald Glover, as well as writing it, um, 
plays the main character who's Ern, who's a sort of uh, vacuum of a character, really. He's a sort of, he's, he's a bit of a, he's a Princeton dropout and he's sort of homeless, but he's got a kid. He's got an on-off relationship with the mother of the kid. They're living together at, at the moment where we are anyway. And um, they're in Atlanta. And then the other main character is his, cousin who um is a rapper called paperboy who's sort of (laughs) experiencing the first bits of success um and it just sort of it's kind of plotless it just sort Mm. of meanders along but you're right about that kind of sudden tonal changes which is actually one of the i mean it's kind of the thing that's so amazing in a very concentrated way in this this is america it's that kind of jarring tonal clash mm. that makes that video so incredible and like the second episode of i don't did you did you watch number two where they're yes, in the in, yes. the in the they're not in jail are they they're they're in yeah, the kind of like waiting yeah, yeah. room they're basically. in the waiting room yeah. of jail yeah um and it's quite funny there's a there's a bunch of um uh it's like a kind of almost like a beckett you know waiting for godot star humor and um, he's just sitting there um this this couple have a conversation with him in the middle and he can't get out of it um but it's not just a couple having a conversation it's a couple where the man doesn't realize that the woman is actually trans <laughs> and they've already had a relationship <laughs> and, they've already had a relationship. <laughs> and then there's like a, a kind of crazy guy who's like drinking water from the toilet there's all this sort of insane stuff going on and then suddenly it becomes really chilling and um there's an episode of sort of police brutality that's just just completely mm. shocking. There's also in the, I think it might be in the same episode uh, an instance where a white mate of his, I don't know if it's a DJ or something like that, uses the N word. Yes, that's uh, recounts a story in which he tells a black DJ he you know says that to him in a kind of affectionate jokey yeah. way as they all do within yeah. the program, and it just shows the subtlety of like, the the chill on Ern's face and he gets him to try and repeat it later. Like, did you actually say that? Can you believe you said that? And so the, the sort of sense of the, um, of those, those moments of, of racism that, that punctuate their, their lives is it sort of underpins the entire thing, doesn't it? It's like, I, I also thought that this extremely bizarre episode, which was, um, I mentioned briefly before mm. number seven, which, um, <laughs> is the one in which Paperboy appears on a daytime TV discussion, um, about, a man, um, a black guy from Atlanta called Antoine, who is racially transitioning to a 35-year-old white man from Colorado. Um, and <laughs> he basically goes around, he says, well, how, how are you sort of beginning your transition? And he goes around wearing Patagonia clothing and asking, um, what kind of IPA do you have on tap? And it's a very sort of sharp look at the at trans issues from the perspective of this kind of you know, racial transitioning. <laughs> very, very odd. Um, extremely funny. Slightly kind of old fashioned, I thought, as in terms of its humour. It was brass eye-ish to well, us. Well, exactly. It, you're, you're absolutely right. But what's striking is that it's kind of people don't feel bold enough to to do that yeah. now, really. Um, so... It it, fe- it does feel it does feel quite edgy. I think now um, the um, the this, uh, sexual politics spokesperson they have on there um, says to Paperboy, uh, you know, I I think that you're I've done some research on your lyrics and they're very sexual spectrum too. <laughs> yes, and then the presenter's just going, why do you hate trans people? Why do you hate women? And, <laughs> and actually, but even in there, they manage to get in. There's a moment where Paperboy says something about like. Um, you know, 
why do you expect me to care about this issue when nobody cares about me as a young black man? And like suddenly in the middle of it, you've got a kind of very hard hitting point that kind of strikes yeah. strikes home. And but, she, and in fact, this like psychologist woman goes like, yeah, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Also in that, uh, I know it's, it's absolutely tedious to just recount episodes, but the, just to give you a sense of, and again, like Brass Eye, it's, although it's kind of slow and miranding, it's very dense in its, in its human way, especially that episode, because it incl- con- includes all these um, sort of fake TV ads. And there's one that I just thought was actually inspired, which is a cartoon for Coconut Crunchos um, children's cereal. And it starts off with this wolf chasing these kids to try and get the Coconut Crunchos. And then it just this is, it comes to the sort of natural endpoint of the ad. And then like a policeman appears in all in the animation, all in the sort of Scooby-Doo style animation and starts trying to arrest the wolf. And then it just turns into a sort of proper chilling kind of police brutality again. Uh, it's just, it's really, This is, this is know, why he said he doesn't want people to necessarily laugh at it because, mm. you know, he's sort of saying, I don't want um, black people smoking weed because it's cool. I want them smoking weed because they've got PTSD. Yeah. Like that's, that's what... That's what you, that's what the truth of this city is, and it is. It's a very very strange city. I, I spent a couple of days there a few years ago, and it's one of the most sprawling and, and vast American cities I've been to. And you've got the sort of classic thing of the the central business district also being the place where there's the highest homeless population. So the the place that's creating the money is also the people with the least of it who are sort of literally sitting in the doorsteps. And then you've got these kind of weatherboard houses that stretch right the way up to the to the airport, like quite beautiful old houses, mm. but rickety. Um, and then right in the middle, I think this comes up in the in the show as well, the Coke Museum, which is what everyone heads to Atlanta for. Or if you um, are there on business, as a lot of people are, then they'll obviously go to the Coke Museum. And I think they talk about that. But Is it the birthplace of Coke? I think possibly, yeah. Right. Or maybe, maybe it's not even. Right. That would okay. be so American, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's, and then there's some very rich villas with performing arts centres that are just around the corner from projects right. and stuff. And um, I think he describes it as as the Wild West. And, and he also has this point of making a location change in every episode so you do get that sense of the sort of the drift of this mm. this place and the how difficult it is really to just make it there in in any mm. way mm. well i'm really hooked on this it's it's um i don't know how many episodes are in the season but but season one um all of it so far is on uh, bbc iplayer the second season just for in fact he he he's a kind of he's become this sort of media multimedia orchestrator because in the States last month, he it was the season finale of Atlanta, which is a really big deal in the States, right? This show is is huge for for FX, the channel that's that's got it. It's their biggest ever thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, it was the season finale of that. He guest hosted Saturday Night Live and This Is America was released into the world <laughs> on the same evening, basically. You can only so go down from here. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of extraordinary. Um so yeah, I, I recommend checking it out. Kate, it's time for our non-aversary. What have you got? It is. So 1997, how many years ago is that? 21? Yeah. Yeah. 21 years ago right now, the song that ruled the airways of the world was I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy featuring Faith Evans. I almost feel we've talked about it before. And I think the only reason for that, it was such a 90s irritant to me that I feel it's always in my mind somehow. Um, In the 90s, the power of like local radio growing up in Norfolk. And there were some songs that were just on every time you turned the button on. And yeah. another one was Lisa Loeb's Stay, I Missed You. Yeah. Similar, similar name. Joan Osborne's What If God Was One Of Us. 
and this as well. So those things that were kind of like sentimental and maudlin and you associate with ring roads and traffic jams in the rain. And this was one. And of course, it samples Barber's Adagio for Strings and uh, the spiritual I'll Fly Away. And of course, Sting. Yeah, the police. And um, I guess it's remarkable for, you know, the level of sampling is, it sort of takes sampling to a new extreme doesn't it's a grandmother's it? axe of a I was, song. I, was, <laughs> There's no song I was trying to think of I, I was trying to think of other examples where the sample is just basically I mean it's just a cover ver- it's sort of just a cover version and I was sort of thinking well what was the deal with Sting on this and um they recorded it without asking his permission um but then so just present I guess just presented it to him and he did give permission I was thinking well that's that's kind of that's kind of amazing that he did that. And then I look down on the Wikipedia entry and it says, Sting has 100% of the publishing royalties. I was like, oh, okay, that'll be why then. <laughs> you imagine what a source of Sting's income this song is. It's incredible. It was, of course, um, um, a tribute to the notorious B.I.G. Wallace, who was killed on March the 9th that year. So actually it was quite rush released, as mm. they say. They got this together. They pulled this tribute together in two Faith, months. Faith Evans was his widow. Ah, yes. Um, Biggie's widow. And I still find it sickening though as a song. <laughs> it's um what was quite interesting is watching the watching it is it is quite sickening, but the video is quite an unwrap unwrapped video. Like it's the only rural set rap video that I can think <laughs> of. Like he's on a hill. Puff Daddy. Is was he, he in, was he Puff Daddy at that point? Uh he was, yeah. yeah he was still Puff then Daddy. He became P. Diddy. Is he in Elysium or something like that? Um I think well, certainly towards the end there's a, a bunch of kids dressed in white who run up to the top of the hill who yeah. I presume that's, you know, either they're gonna be sacrificed to appease <laughs> appease the gods or uh, they're in some sort of uh, heaven heaven zone does he have little blue tinted sunglasses on i feel like he does in the video he has got he's got tinted he's got tinted sunglasses mm. whether they're blue i'm not i'm not mm. i'm not sure but he's also it looks very 90s the color palette is weirdly 90s mm. and um the cut of his suit is slightly oversized slightly suit. boxy yeah slightly boxy suit like he's he's a sixth former who's just gone to um Oh, I don't know. What would it? Where Where would you go? Um, I want to say Timpsons, but that's the place where you get your keys. <laughs> Burtons. Cut. Burtons, maybe. Yeah. yeah, it's his first suit. Also, I I wonder if the money was was it a charity song? I don't know. It feels like it should. Like now, it would definitely go to charity, but it probably just I went to Pub Daddy. So. No, I I I. What a faith. Well, it all went to Sting, I think. It went to Sting, of course. <laughs> but no, I think he, the, there's a line in it where he's like, "And now I'm I'm taking care of your family." So okay, so. maybe. Who knows? It's still clothing, it's... still clothing his family, B.I.G.'s family. Uh, so happy 21st anniversary to I'll Be Missing You. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Back Half. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at NS underscore podcasts or me at Tom underscore Gatti. And we have an email address, email, thebackhalfpodcast at gmail.com. We've been recorded by Caroline Crampton and edited by Caroline. And we're going to play you out with... With the testicle tweaking tune... Um, why why have these become so testicle focused you're, you're I just think that's what it feels like I don't have any but it, it, you know it just it's the impact basically it's the impact it never wears off um, Godspeed by Pistol Jazz 
Take it away. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.